we find that a more aggressive presentation, so swiping that fly across their face or dropping it, uh, you know, on those mudding tailing fish, um, but a little bit bigger fly, let's say in the two and a half to four inch range, uh, works a lot better than, than that old method of using a one and a half inch crayfish pattern and just kind of dragging it or little skips along the bottom. That was Kevin Morlock describing how he presents the fly for carp. We're going flats fishing today, Beaver Island Lake style. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you want to go deeper with the podcast and take it to the river, just head over to wetflyswing.com slash destination to get info on the upcoming destination trips we have going and uh, or some trips closer to home. Head over to Instagram at uh, wetflyswing and you can check out more details there as well. In today's episode, I talked to Captain Kevin Morlock, an expert on carp fishing with a focus on Beaver Island Lake. We hear about his background in the Pierre Marquette, find out how this type of carp fishing is similar to flats fishing in the salt, and why cast for cast, carp beats permit every time. Don't miss this one as Kevin describes the plop and why this is a surefire way to not catch a carp on your next trip. This episode is sponsored by Deli Fresh Design, an all-American creator of fine, sustainable fly fishing gear. Stay tuned later in the show to hear how Ross does his part to uh, reduce his waste and impacts with DLD and how he builds uh, great equipment in a sustainable fashion. You can find fresh equipment designs on Instagram at Deli Fresh Design and you can get 20% off your next order using the coupon code WFS20 at DeliFreshDesign.com. We are also sponsored by The Great Drake, who provides high-quality heritage fly fishing tackle while being a good steward of our uh, sport. The new Fall Run fly box they have available for 2019 features small and medium-sized clips on one side of the box and um, slotted cork on the other. Naturally self-healing and hydrophobic will hold flies from the smallest midge to the largest stoneflies. Head over to thegraydrake.com and use the coupon code WFS20. That's WFS20 at checkout to get 20% off your next order of Vintage today. So, without further ado, here is Kevin Morlock. How's it going, Kevin? Hey, good. Thanks for inviting me over, Dave. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be a good conversation on carp. I I just was uh, out with a couple of my buddies last night, and and you probably still hear about this a little bit, but I, 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 talked to, I told him I was going to be doing this interview, and he was like, carp? Aren't, aren't like, I think you said something like, aren't carp a trash fish? And, uh, you kind of get that out there. So we're going to talk a little bit about like the, the, maybe the, the history of carp and how it, it kind of, it's still known as, you know, maybe a trash fish. Although I think in the fly fishing space, it's getting bigger. Um, but before we get into all that and you, what you do guiding for carp and everything, can you just talk about how you first got into uh, fly fishing? Yeah, uh, somewhere in college, I had a roommate that was into fly fishing, and it, it kind of looked intriguing. And I liked that it was, uh, you know, more dynamic than conventional fishing, which I had done, you know, since I was a little kid. And once I got hooked, uh, you know, as you might say, I was I was on it into fly tying and joined my my Federation of Fly Fishers chapter and everything else. And uh, 
when I jump into something, I jump into it head first. So it wasn't that many years uh, before I got into fly fishing and then I was actually guiding. Not that I wanted to become a guide, it just happened, but uh, uh, there wasn't a big span of years between there. Really? So it was, uh, and how did you, so what were you, what track were you on before you were, got into guiding, like as far as what you were going to do? I went to uh, college for fisheries and wildlife management, uh, dropped out uh, after several years and uh, went and got a regular job for a couple of years and paid off student loans. Mm -hmm. And then I went to uh, my girlfriend at the time and I moved over to West Michigan by where the Piermarket, Manistee and Muskegon rivers are. Oh, wow. And just kind of, she was waitressing and I was, uh, doing boat repairs and had a little custom boat shop. And that allowed me to meet all of the fishing guides and become friends with some of them. And, uh, one of them kind of mentored me into maybe getting into guiding. And I ended up being the substitute guide over here for a while during mm -hmm. the peak seasons. And, uh, and that was actually a lot more fun than what I was doing. So yeah, that well, I fell right into it. What, what were you guiding for then when you started out? Uh, salmon, trout, and steelhead. So you're talking about the uh, the Pier Marquette and that area, which you found yourself living by, and that was just randomly? I, I couldn't remember what you said about uh, how you got into the Michigan area. You know, having no plan, we kind of, uh, at that time in our young lives, and, and that girlfriend is now my wife of 20 years, huh. but we, uh, instead of, you know, being career-oriented and everything else, we decided on where we might like to live, and my my family always had a cabin uh, in this area. So we just moved over here, and then we're going to figure out ways to make a living after that. Cool, that's that's awesome. So you, so yeah, the family cabin. So you guys moved up there. I got you into the pretty much one of the great steelhead areas for of the whole Midwest, right in that area. Couldn't have been luckier. Yes. Yeah, and and you didn't even realize, and then you get into it, so you start steelhead fish or guiding and all that. And then how long from there until you get into this, the carp thing? Wasn't too many years after that. Um, I was probably being a full-time guide, uh, just two or three years after I did my first guide trip. Uh, it was really booming, uh, in fly fishing and guiding over here at the time. So it was pretty easy to step right in. I, I don't remember exactly, but I started working full-time out of the Orvis shop in Baldwin, and I I think I was like the 17th guide um, working out of there during the peak season. So, I mean, they had a whole stable. Maybe it was only 12, but I think it was like 17. Huh. Wow. And, and that's still a pretty big uh, store over there or shop over there? Yeah. it's uh, That boom, I think, has kind of went away. Everybody always said it was the uh, river runs through it boom. I All don't right. know. That true or not, but uh, uh, it's actually there's less guides around here now than there has been in the last twenty some years that I've been been working and living over here. Sure. Okay. So basically, well, and that's what I want to dig in here today is just on the carp fishing, you know, and and maybe before we you know get started, uh, you know, on, on kind of some of the details here, you can talk. I mean, Beaver Island, I guess that's that's the area that you hear about. It sounds like a pretty amazing place. Can you? describe uh beaver island and, and that that area just kind of what it looks like in the fishery to somebody who hasn't been there from a from a fishing perspective i would recommend you know the boat is really nice it's a two-hour ferry ride from charlevoix michigan over to the islands but really for a, a fly fisherman or a flats fisherman taking that 20-minute plane ride from charlevoix to beaver island 
you're going to see the prettiest flats hmm. anywhere. I mean, it looks like you're coming into the Caribbean. You're going to see bottom shading 100 foot down if the sun's out. Uh, it's really incredible, and it gives you a it gives you a good level of excitement before you uh, you know hit the boat and get out on the water. So we have about 380 miles of shoreline around the archipelago. There's about 12 or 13 islands, depending on how little you count an island. Um, some of them are just clumps of bushes now. Hmm. The, the water's been coming up for the last couple of years, so things are changing. We've lost shoreline. Hmm. So, but the, the water couldn't be clearer, and we never – I mean, we see every carp before we catch it. That we've yeah. never – I don't think we've ever caught a carp, you know, blind up there. Okay. Uh, you see them before you catch them. So that's kind of neat. Wow. And what, and so is this unique? Um, to, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's pretty unique to that area. Are there other areas, you know, that have the, these uh, same, uh, similar sort of fishery where you're, you know, the thing that what you guys are doing, or is this kind of unique? So it seems to be a Northern Great Lakes thing being on the fringe of the carp's habitat, uh, the Northern fringe. And it, it seems to be uh, correlated to to warm water and cold water. Um, so in Southern Michigan, you've got the same thing, but it, it ends really quick as soon as the water warms up, maybe to the mid 70 degree level. And then as you go up, they seem to linger a little bit longer. So take Traverse Bay, you know, I was never able to find any number of carp there past 4th of July, but mid June, there's tens of thousands of carp all over the place spawning and hanging out in the shallows for the warm water. But, you know, just two weeks beyond that, the water temperature would, would get higher and they, they move offshore and, and they were just not available to, to try and catch. So the further you go in Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, the later the season maintained and it really never goes away. I've never been on Beaver Island past mid August. But I have caught carp there in mid-August. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's yeah, it sounds pretty cool. Well, maybe we can start off, you know, digging into this and go back to my buddy, you know, uh, uh, Russ, who was talking about, you know, the the trash fish stuff. Could you, uh, you know, make the um, kind of the pitch for? And I guess you do also hear things like the poor man's uh, bonefish and all that stuff. Can you uh, kind of make a pitch for why somebody would love maybe trying out the carp fishing, like what you guys do out there? Yeah, I guess there's two uh, ways to look at that, right? I, uh, I'm i happy every time I hear people uh, shun away from the carp fishing because I love looking out at 380 miles of shoreline and not seeing anyone else doing it. Right. Um, but uh, they are missing it. And I guess, you know, if you're, a, if you're, if fly fishing means trout fishing to you, uh, then it, then it's, this is, absolute 100% flats fishing, whether you're wading or you're on one of our flat skiffs. So it is not going to be the type of fly fishing that you're looking for. So that, that excludes a whole lot of people that just aren't into flats fishing. Yeah. Um, but if you're into that, you know, instead of going somewhere in the tropics on a, on a flats destination, when it's really hot in the middle of summer, you know, you can come up where it's nice and cool and beautiful, and there's no nicer place to be than northern Michigan in the summer. Mm-hmm. Be on crystal clear water taking shots at fish that are about 18 to 30 pounds on wow. average, with some going Jeez. even bigger. A good day is going to get 100 shots, 
and we have days that are much better than that. And then an average day, you're probably still going to be in the 30 to 60 shot range. <laughs> wow. Now, how many fish do you catch out of that? We usually get one or three carp in a day. Uh, if you don't do everything perfect on a carp, you are going to get declined. Yep. So they're kind of neat. I mean, I, huh. I've never caught a permit, but when I have guys that fish for a permit and they come up and fish, they think cast for cast, the carp are tougher than the permit. The only difference is instead of getting a couple shots at a day, we get a hundred shots in a day. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, I was just listening to Tom Rosenbauer talking about on, I think one of his past uh, episodes, they were talking about the, yeah, the challenge that it's, uh, it's like you said, it's just as challenging, if not more challenging than all the, all the species, all the salt, you know, the saltwater species that you're talking about. So, well, let's, let's talk about a little bit, maybe get into some of that, you know, with the tips to help somebody if they were heading out there, getting ready for a trip to, to go there or just fish for carp you know, how they might maybe have a better chance at hooking up with some of those fish and, and just talk about how you guys do it there. How, how do you, you know, how do you get into carp and maybe kind of walk us through do you guys typically more boat, more weight, walking weight, or how do you do that? So early in the season, we do a little more waiting, but as, as we've progressed at, at getting better at guiding up there, um, maybe, and, and our customers are, are, end up being the same people year after year. I would say 70% of our, our bookings on Beaver Island are the same people that have been coming up for the last many years. So we are doing less waiting than we used to, but we still do it if it's, if it's a good opportunity. The one thing that's tough about the waiting is I'm going to lose contact if I have two people with one of them, right? I can only mm -hmm. shadow one of them and, and give them tips on slow down and, don't cast yet. Wait a minute. Wait till that fish turns and all of that stuff. When I've got them in the boat, then I then I can really do a better job of, of instructing them. And, you know, the visual aspect of it is is one of the toughest. And I'm blessed so far as to still have guide eyes. But, you know, most people don't have that. Hmm. So I can usually tell where that fish is pointing, whether it's tipped down, you know, whether it's coming at the fly, whether it's eating the fly. Um when to take the shot and whether to hold off and, and just wait 30 seconds for that fish to turn or get around that boulder or whatever. So if I'm up on my polling platform, I've got a whole lot more advantage whether than with, if I'm standing in knee deep water next to the, yep. the person that's trying to catch that fish. So we find that we probably catch more fish out of the boat uh, per hour than if we get out and wade. One of the toughest things is we almost, it is really hard to go slow enough to get within casting range to a carp. Um, and the reason that is, is we have all cobble and gravel and stuff like that up on the islands. And every time you take a step, it crunch, 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 grind. Right. You know, you, there's some places where you just cannot uh, get close enough to make a cast at a carp hmm. because cobbling and it just makes too much noise. And, and there even, even the best angler can't get close enough to those fish. In most of the other spots, though, you can. And the tip there is watch the behavior of that, that fish or those group of fish. And then as you walk out there, if they start changing that behavior, stand still and don't make any noise or movement. And that may be five minutes until they regroup and get back to doing what they're doing. And then you can keep approaching with that method. So 
usually what I see even good carp anglers doing is they're approaching those fish on those rocks too quick. And even if they get cast at them, those fish know something's up right. and have changed their, changed their, you know, yep. the way they're acting. And now they're kind of being skittish instead of being, you know, predators, which is what we need them to be. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's one important tip for sure. And then when you get there, so maybe we just talk quickly about, you know, rod, reel, line, leader set up for, you know, carp and how important or just, you know, how you, how you do that and, and what you use. Is that a, is that critical, you know, the, the weight of rod and, and, and basically the gear you use? I think it's only critical in that like any flats fishing trip, uh, you're going to be in wind. So, and we're, we're usually fishing a, anywhere from a small lead eye to a larger lead eye. Um, on a pretty big fly that may have bunny strip or marabou or some other stuff that's going to waterlog a bit. So an eight weight is marginal, a nine weight is perfect, and a 10 weight is an overkill. Now you can land our fish on, on eight pound leaders. There's nowhere usually to, to break them off. Now there's a little bit of bushes and trees that are flooded. So there are some places, mm. but you know, really, we don't have to worry about keeping them out of the reef or keeping them out of the mangroves or anything else like that. So it's all about being able to pick up that heavy fly and make a, a good cast into the wind is why we go with that heavier rod. Yep. Okay. So rod and then, and then reel, is that a critical having a good uh, drag, big reel? What, what's the, is that another uh, important uh, thing to think about? You know, I think because there's nowhere to, to lose them and you've got big, wide open spaces, it's much less important than a, than a lot of other fishing you do. I mean, a great drag on my on my river, the Pier Marquette, uh, is critical if you're going to go salmon or steelhead fishing because if you can't put the brakes on them, they're going to be in a log jam eventually. Yeah. But up on Beaver Island, we really don't have that issue. Um, but a lot of backing is important because if you get that carp of a lifetime and you got a 35 pounder on there and mm. the water temperatures in the seventies, it is going to take you out there 200 feet. Yeah. Well, how much backing is further? And we've hit the, I can't tell you how many times we've hit the Arbor knot on big fish. No kidding. Yep. What, what, what do you recommend? How much backing just, I guess as much as you can, you can put on it. Yeah. And usually on my reels, it's, it's all, I use something like a, a power pro or a, you know, a braided spinning rod line. Yep. Um, is what I throw on so I can fit on the maximum amount. Right, right. Okay. And uh, and then as far as just floating lines? Yeah, uh, we need to get our fly down. So if you've got a mudding fish and it's eight foot down and you've got a fly that will sink one foot a second, um, and a tip there is, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people already know this, but if you tie that fly on with a loop knot, it will it will sink twice as quick because it will turn head down. All right you know kind of hydrodynamic and sink quickly mm -hmm. if you tie that straight on uh it will be level as it sinks and it will sink half the speed and sometimes we go the opposite if i if i'm out waiting and i didn't bring my fly box on accident and i got a medium weight to fly and i need to suspend that fly a little slower and two foot of water then i'll i'll cut that loop knot off tie it straight on and then that will that'll give me a little buffer there gotcha what's the loop knot you use I use that uh, no slip, uh, yeah. I don't permit knot or whatever it is. Wrap yeah. it around three times. That one works great for me. Gotcha. Okay. And so, and then what else? Anything else you want to talk about here? Just as far as the terminal tackle, or maybe a leader. How how long are you going on your leader? 
That's a great question. I guess I should go back to, uh, you know, you asked about the floating lines. We need to see the end of the fly line because usually we can't see the fly. Mm. And I have to have that fly um, right in front of that carp. So I guess I should, I could maybe digress to the biggest mistake people make with carp and they don't realize how poor their vision is. Those carp can see about one fish length of ahead of them now they can see you in the water and they can see the boat or sense the boat from a much further distance but as far as seeing a fly i figure it's about one fish length in front of their eyes so you've got to get the fly into that zone and most people are too used to pike and smallmouth bass and all kinds of other fish that were made to be predators so they get the fly five foot away they get to fly eight foot away Um, They get to fly two foot away, but it's underneath the fish's nose on the bottom when the Mm -hmm. fish is suspended or something like that. And that fish just doesn't know that fly is there and they think they're getting rejected. So when we're out and I'm on the polling platform, I'm actually giving up. I'm giving up. I'm keeping track of how many flies we're getting in front of the fish. And you'd be surprised at maybe maybe the average guy only gets to fly in the strike zone one out of 10 times. Wow. So they think that they've gotten eight out of 10, but in reality, we've only got the fly there once. Uh, and maybe it wasn't even a good shot. Maybe it was a, a shot where it was coming back the wrong way and the fish would have had to spin all the way around to go after it. You know, uh, yeah. so it's, it's hard to get that right angle and, and everything on that fish to make it, to make it work out. Gotcha. So, Always remember that those fish just can't see very well, and that fly has to be perfectly presented in that in that one fish length in front of them. So, if, again, if we've got a mudding fish or a cruising fish and it's six or eight feet down, and that's going to take six or eight seconds to get down, you've got to – it doesn't help to have a sink tip. The sink tip is going to keep it down once it's down, but it doesn't let it sink any quicker. Hmm. So on leader length, I have four rods in the boat, and one of them is going to have about a five-foot leader. And, and that counts the whole tippet and everything. So fly line to fly is about five foot. And that's going to be an eight weight. And that's so when we get in the shallows, we can make more delicate presentation with smaller flies. And then as I, the rule of thumb that I have is stay about two foot longer on your whole leader tippet length. So fly line to fly than the water you're going to be fishing. So now you can see the end of the fly line and you can see that that's right over the fish. One more strip tight or little pop and you're going to be right in the strike zone. Mm. So having those rods set up for anywhere from um, 10 feet deep to one foot deep really helps be able to know right where that fly is. Even, even an expert carper, you give them a 10 foot, 12 foot leader in three foot of water and you got no idea where that fly is if you can't see it. No. The end of the fly line is there by the fish. Now is it two more big strips, three little ones? What is it to get that into the zone? And remember, if you strip it one too many times, now you're on the uh, far or the inside of the fish, and they still can't see it. So it's mm-hmm. all about being precise with that fly placement. Um, and and that's I think the biggest strum- struggling uh, part that 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 people have on the carp fishing. Gotcha. And is there two, you know, if you have that fish, if you are a a master, you know, a caster sort of thing, I mean, could you get too close? I mean, can you just put it right on the fish, right above the fish within a couple inches sort of thing? Is that, so 
So another neat thing, the most terrifying thing to a carp, or at least in the waters that I guide on, is plop. Oh. I don't know why, but they hate things plopping around them. I'm going to guess that, you know, that was birds when they were little and it, it put terror in their, in their, in their hearts. But everything that plops around them is like the most terrifying thing they could, they could encounter. They can swim up to the boat in three foot of water and they do not blow up. Like if you cast a, a weighted fly on top of them. So with all of these fish, even a mutter that's sitting there in six foot of water, I'm going to cast and line that fish, which people hate to do. And I'm going to put that fly about 20 feet past that fish. All right. That that plump is way away, and that all of that energy from the end of that fly line that slaps down is way away from that fish, and that soft uh, part of that fly line is going to line really gently on that fish, and then we're going to strip back to him and let it drop right there where where he's at. So again, we can't cast right on him like you can with some fish. Um, mm -hmm. We've got to cast away. Gotcha. Okay. So, and then how uh, you know if, as far as casting length, what's a somebody wanted to practice or kind of work on it, how, how long should they be able to cast? And is it the same sort of thing with like the salt where you got to be able to, there's the fish, get on it quickly, or do you have more time? Years ago, I had a great carp fisherman uh, from the Midwest and he was a horrible caster. I mean, just horrible. It, this practicing fly casting must not have been his thing. Um, and, but fly fishing was his passion and carp fly fishing was his passion and he caught all the carp you needed to catch because his fly, he knew how to cast past the fish and bring it back. And his precision on the fly was excellent. So if you got him within 40 feet of a carp, he was going to put the fly where it needed to be. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I would, I would like to see people have a little more casting ability than that, you know, be able to hit accurately out at 50 and 60 feet. Um, great casters generally catch no more fish than a, than a good intermediate caster on the island. Mm -hmm. That's funny, but the reason is, is because of that precision you have to have with that fly, a great caster that can throw a fly line will try and hit that fish at 90 feet. And I don't know where the fly is and he doesn't know where the fly is. So our fly precision goes down. Um, and, and, but you end up spooking that fish before you get another shot. It's really important mm -hmm. to try and catch that fish on the first cast doesn't mean you can't catch them on the 20th but every every time that fly and that fly line hits the water that that fly jingles across the rocks on the bottom or whatever the boat's rocking and pitching or we're waiting and you know grinding rocks or whatever but you know every every second we're we're within casting range of that fish he is going to get spooked at some point in there yeah. or or change his behavior and start saying, hey, something's up. So you can have a mudding fish, and I've seen him from a football field away, right? And, you know, two casts later, we're still 80 feet off from him, but he knows something's up, and he's tilt he's flattened out, and he's not feeding anymore. <coughs> mm -hmm. And uh, so it's important to try and get those fish on the first cast. That's what's important. And, and on long casters, I try and rein them in, wait, 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 let's just get a little bit closer and make that first cast count. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. People like to see how far away they can catch that fish, and I think that's cool if that's your goal. But if you want to get that fish in the boat, it's much better to wait until we're about 60 feet out so we can have great precision on that fly. 
Gotcha. Okay. And, and how does, I mean, I don't know, is a carp a carp? You know, if you talk about other areas, it sounds like the Beaver Island area is, is fairly unique, but people are fishing for carp in all sorts of, you know, rivers and, and areas. I mean, are there certain, I'm not sure if you fished around for carp in other areas, but do you think some of the, the tips we're talking about here would apply? And one of them might be say sun angle, you know, maybe we could talk about that and if, you know, how important that is there and may, maybe in other areas. I don't, that's a tough one. There's the bulk of our people are not going to be able to have a wind coming on the bad side. So you can, visibility is important, but I'm almost, I mean, if a person can only cast at the 11 o'clock with the wind coming off that, uh, off their right shoulder for a right hand caster, right? So I mean the perfect setup in a skip, right? Uh, then then me being able to see the fish and them being able to see the fish is secondary because if they can't make the, the cast, it doesn't matter if they can see the fish or not. Mm-hmm. So I think that I'm almost always dictated on on how to approach. So as I'm going out, and I know I have a left-handed caster who has intermediate abilities, and we've got pretty breezy conditions, and we're only going to be able to cast at that window on the left side of the boat between, let's say, 9 o'clock and noon, I'm going to be thinking of places that I can go that are going to give me that opportunity um, to make that cast. And I'm going to have to deal with the the sun in my eyes or or whatever I'm going to have to do. As far as the fish, I've never really noticed that it made much difference to them and their ability to see the fly, you know, whether it was coming one way or the other. But I am almost always ruled by which, which, what my casting ability of the folks in the boat are. Okay. And even a great caster, because of the fly precision being so important, there's a, just a small handful of people that can make on a on a mudding fish where you're going to have to land that fly that fly line right over the top of the fish and then strip back. There's very few people that can make a long, you know, a 50, 60 foot, I'm calling long, offhand cast that's going to be within that three foot window of be, being over the top of that fish. Yeah. So it's almost it's almost better to be on that on hand side where they're going to have that great lateral accuracy on that cast. Right, right, okay. And what is the you mentioned the mudding? What what is that exactly? So I messed up my terminology years ago when I didn't know nothing about. Uh, I was just a river guide. I had never been on a, a saltwater trip. I didn't really know much about it. I got into this carp fishing head over heels. And I kind of made my own terminology, right? And the one thing I missed is I called mudding fish when I had a big school of carp, which is kind of a rare occasion up there by us. And they will have the water so turned up that you can't see individual fish. You're oh. just going to be casting into a mud cloud, and maybe there's a rich spot of mud, or you see a tail, you know, waving, and you're going to target that. And I called that mudding. And then I called tailing any individual or groups of fish that we could see. And there's the hoe fish. He's tipped down. He's got a little bit of silt and mud coming off the side. And that was what I called a, a tailing fish. But its tail wasn't necessarily out of the water, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that terminology was wrong. So since then, I've tried to correct that and, and, and only call mudding fish what they do, you know, in the rest of the world. And that's a that's a fish that's tilted down. He's puffing mud. You know, he's feeding yeah. on the bottom. And at a true tailing fish up on the Beaver Islands is something we only see 
I saw one tail out of the water this whole year. Mm. They have an innate ability. So you've got a carp that's three foot long. It's it's mudding in 18 inches of water, and he knows exactly how to keep his body angle so that his tail does not break the surface. <laughs> they are masters of that. But every now and then, and again, it only happened once this year, every now and then you will come around a corner and you'll be like, huh, I don't remember a patch of lily pads being there. And really, we have almost no lily pads on the island. And then you're like, then it's a half second. You're like, oh, I know what that is. Cool. Huh. So you've got a whole school of bingo tails blowing in the wind, oh, and they wow. look like that. So that's uh, that's, that's cool. something I dream about seeing when I come around the corner. Those are happy, happy fish. Yeah. Wow. That's that's cool. All right. Well, now let's go back to just on the the fishing. So you know, again, somebody's heading out there. Um, you know, anything else we want to talk about to make sure? It sounds like it's fairly straightforward as far as the the lines and uh and leader well you made you did make the one tip that you want to have your leader at least two two feet deeper than the water depth that was that correct yes yeah so 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 that makes that makes it easy to set that up um so anything else if they're coming up there say they're gonna plan on fishing up there with you or maybe we can just talk in general about carp i mean that may, may be a little bit more challenging but any other tips or anything you want to talk about that might help somebody get into some fish so i'd say right up there with one of the top mistakes people make. And I, I only know this because people come up and, and tell me about the situation where they tried carp fishing a few days, a few times. And it's, it's when they go, maybe they drove up to Traverse city to try this whole thing, or maybe it's on the lake that they live by right in Indiana or what have you. But what they'll do is they, they know that those carp are active in May and June when the spawn is on. And that's when they'll go out and they can see those fish splashing around and they they make some casts and maybe maybe even they foul hook a fish, right? Yeah. And they're like, you know, those fish where I live just aren't interested. I can't catch spawning fish either. <laughs> One time in 16 full summers of guiding for carp on the islands, we've caught a fish. Uh, my buddy Alex... Uh, Threw it one maybe two or three years ago at a spawning cluster, and a little male broke off and ate that fly. And I've never seen that before. And uh, you know, yeah. they are they are nearly impossible fish to catch. But what you're going to have is you're going to have fish in that area that are individuals and doubles and stuff like that that are either just got done spawning or they're just thinking about getting into it. And those fish are a hundred percent catchable. Yeah. So, I will see spawning activity and I will go right there um, and I will fish in that area. But we, we avoid breaking up the spawning clusters. So we, we try not to let them run into us. If we're waiting, we try not to let them run into the boat. Um, and then we shoot at those satellite fish that are around that area. Okay. What, what's I'm the, pretty yeah. certain, I'm pretty certain that spawning fish are, pre-spawn fish are attracted into that area with all of that commotion i don't know if you've seen carp spawn but they're, they throw water 10 feet in the air and splash around and hmm. you know you can hear them two football fields away on a calm day yeah <laughs> and the neat thing about beaver island is again that quick learning curve because of the crystal clear water uh it takes a whole lot of guesswork out of it. How I how I feel confident that those other fish are attracted is because I see other fish beelining out of the deep water straight for those spawning uh, groups of carp. Let's take a quick break from a word from our sponsors. The Great Drake, since 2014, the Great Drake's mission has been to provide high-quality heritage fly fishing tackle while being good stewards of our sport. 
They use sustainable cork instead of silicone or foam inserts in their fly boxes. These cork inserts are naturally self-healing and hydrophobic and will not and will hold flies from the smallest midge to the largest stone flies and hoppers. Be on the lookout for the new Fall Run fly box available in 2019. This aluminum fly box features small and medium-sized clips on one side and uh, on the other slotted cork, which is perfect for bombers and skaters. The Great Drake also produces their classic classic uh, vintage leather fly wallets, handmade and sewn with care uh, from USA uh, leather workers. This is a piece of tackle you can be proud of to pass down to the next generation. Conservation is the key with the Great Drake, and they support uh, great organizations including Utah Stream Access Coalition and Trout Unlimited's Wild Steelheaders United. Head over to thegraydrake.com to check out their classic selection of fly boxes and wallets today. We are also sponsored by Deli Fresh Design, a company that makes sustainable fly fishing gear in the heart of Denver, Colorado. Deli Fresh blends old waders and cordura canvas to make rugged river-tested gear such as fly wallets, koozies, and their classic sling packs. You can listen to the full podcast interview with Ross, the founder of DLD, uh, at episode 79 of, of this podcast. But take a quick listen to a short clip from that uh, interview that gives an example of how Ross reduces his waste uh, with his personal actions as a business and highlights his dedication to conservation. But as a company, I'm trying to reduce my impact uh, by riding a bike or taking uh, the bus or shared uh, shared cars, stuff like that on uh, for commuting. And then, you know, yeah, when I go fishing, I, I'll get in a car, but I, I try to go with other people. And, and so I think there's things that as consumers that we can do on a daily basis. My own mentality of doing those things on a daily basis, like driving or, or riding a bike, uh, and then trying to see what uh, what materials I can use that reduce waste or what I'm trying to do as a person and as a company. Let's help Ross and DLD do great things today and this year for fly fishing and conservation. All of DFD's gear will help you spend more time casting and less time juggling your stuff. To see these great products, go to uh, Instagram and follow them where you can see their latest designs. Or you can head over to DeliFreshDesign.com and use the coupon code WFS20 to get 20% off your next order. That's DeliFreshDesign.com. Okay, back to the show. So you, you mentioned time. What is the best time if you had to pick one time to go up there and fish it? So I'll give you two best times, yeah. right? If we get warm weather early in the season, so we're going to get up to the island about May 15th this year, and if we have good weather, warm weather, hot weather, uh, that will be the best fishing of the year. I mean, it'll be unstoppable. Every carp and every smallmouth bass and every pike will be in the shallows to avoid being in that 42-degree water that's out in the open lake. Um, so we will. that will be the best fishing of the year. Now, the weather's more turbulent. On an average day, you might have to wear a jacket that time of year. I mean, the ice has only been gone from that area maybe less than a month. Oh, wow. It broke up. So it is still pretty, huh. pretty you know, spring-like when you get up there. But that is great fishing, and that's when I would recommend that all beginners go, okay? Now, if you're a permit guy and, you know, you don't want to catch five easy fish or ten easy fish, you want to catch a couple tough fish in a day, but you still want plenty of shots and lots of action, then I think July, and that's my favorite time to go to, to carp fish, 
because we're out on the outer islands. The weather's beautiful, 77 degrees and a breeze, and you're targeting, you know, those mudding fish that are down there three to, you know, seven, maybe even eight feet deep. And it's just really cool to take shots at those and, and put that fly there and watch them stop, stop mudding, come over two feet, grab that fly, set the hook. I think, I think it can't get better than that. But for a beginner, you know, you're in the breeze on the pitching flat skiff. Waiting is really tough that time of year. Um, and your fly casting is going to have to be really accurate and a little longer casting than you're going to, you know, be doing earlier in the season. Okay. And, um, and then water temps, I think we, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but is there a, you know, something to think about when you're going to an area to know when to fish it or when not to, as far as water temps? Yeah. There's just one thing to know. Warmer, warmest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 50 degree water is much nicer to carp and we catch them at 50 degrees. If the main lake is 40 degrees yet. So you want to be in the warmest part of that lake and that is where the carp are going to be. And if, if there's carp somewhere else, they're not going to be happy. So you find the warmest water in that body of water, and that's where the carp are going to be. Think yep. of until you hit about the mid-70 degree range, okay? They will still seek warmer water than that, but not as aggressively. Think of carp as you being in shorts without without a shirt on, okay? 40 degrees is intolerable, and you'll <laughs> do anything to find something warmer. 60 degrees? I'm going to do some feeding. Maybe I'm going to look at some girls or some yeah. boys, whatever. But I'd like something warmer than this. 75 degrees, I'm pretty darn comfortable. Yeah. I, can, I can think about other things other than seeking out warm water now. Yep. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, what about, uh, you know, do, are there any uh, resources for carp? You know, books, magazines, uh, websites, anything that, uh, you know, uh, that might help somebody if they want to read up and learn about other things we maybe didn't cover or go deeper? I think... If you can get your hands on it, the the Carper Game Fish Two by George von Schroeder is 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 a really uh, is a really well done fun book. Um, probably published forty years ago now, maybe in the eighties, maybe it was the nineties. Um, you can still find a couple copies here and there on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is a really good resource for fishing uh, the Northern Great Lakes, um, and I I think they're there isn't much better that, that points right in the direction of that. Changes that have occurred since that book is he wanted to throw a little smaller crayfish fly and kind of bounce it along the bottom. And that can still catch plenty of fish, okay? With the gobies, which are an invasive species that showed up on the Beaver Islands about 10 or 12 years ago, we find that a more aggressive presentation so swiping that fly across their face or dropping it uh you know on those mudding tailing fish um but a little bit bigger fly let's say in the two and a half to four inch range uh works a lot better than than that old method of using a one and a half inch crayfish pattern and just kind of dragging it or little skips along the bottom okay that's good definitely a good tip there so yeah i think peter's book was great on an introductory to to carp fishing i thought it was excellent which one was that uh kurt dieter's book oh yeah the orvis guide to fly fishing maybe mm-hmm. i might be biased the cover of that is one of my photographs oh there you go there you go 
I'll, uh, I'll, I'll look it up and put a link to that in the, in the show notes to those couple of books you mentioned here. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, gives us a couple of resources there. Um, you know, I was kind of thinking a little bit about, you know, again, about you getting into, you know, fly fishing and guiding, which sound like it kind of just happened. Do you remember, you know, can you kind of take us back to that moment when you realized that this is going to be uh, like a full-time you're all in on, this is going to be a full-time, um, kind of career in, in fly fishing? I'll tell you when I got, when I was a hundred percent hooked on fly fishing, uh, we lived about two, this was our old house. We lived about 200 yards from the hex water on the pier market. Um, I knew the hatch was, was going to be going on. I tied up some hex patterns. I mean, they were probably horrible, right? I was <laughs> just learning to tie. Um, and I, I, went down to the down to the river the hatch was going it was actually a blanket hatch um and there was a feeding fish over to the side but i think it i mean it wasn't it was just coming up and eating gulps of mayflies at a time right but i i fished to that fish for about 10 minutes and i finally cooked it and i had caught plenty of trout before then on a fly rod but something about you know that fly coming straight off the vise me walking down to the river uh, you know, yep. fishing that rising fish and then hooking it on that fly that I just tied and land in it. I was, I was all in at that point. Right. Right. And, and that was, and then was the, the guiding was kind of, like you said, not too far off from that point. Yeah, probably, probably two or three years uh, yeah. after that, maybe a little longer. I'm not a great one at keeping track of numbers, Yeah, um, but it was, it was shortly after that. Yes. Gotcha. And, and did you, I can't, couldn't remember if you mentioned, did you just, um, kind of teach yourself or did you have any mentors that were, that helped you? Well, no, you did. Yeah. You had the one mentor, your, your friend that got you into it. Were there other folks out there that you could note that helped you along the way? Sure. George, uh, Dorothy Schramm, uh, and, and her husband, Jim Schramm. Dorothy was the founder of Fly Girls. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that, that yeah. fly fishing club. Um, and Jim is the, uh, dam expert for the Federation of Fly Fishers, which I think has a different name now. Yeah, um, Fly Fishers International. Yeah, so they live just, oh, let's say 40 minutes from where I uh, we live here, and uh, they are wonderful people that will will do everything to help beginners and help clubs start, and, and I couldn't tell you what great mentors they were. The other people in that fly fishing club, and then Walt Grau, and, uh, you know, he, he was he was the one that got me into guiding and, you know, Walt mm -hmm. has always been wonderful about telling me exactly what something was. He never, never that I knew of held back on telling me a great spot, a technique or anything. And he is the best fly tire I know, but let me put a note on that. He's the best fly tire at tying flies that catch fish. Okay. Right. He's not a guy that makes pretty flies to go in fly shops he's a guy that can figure out you know the fly you need to use to catch you know steelhead on a swing around this you know these rivers here or whatever else he is an incredible tire and he's a very inventive uh fly fisherman who brought the two-handed spay rods and everything oh okay yeah to the to this area one of his customers brought him up and and went atlantic salmon fishing and they obviously used two-handers up there and walt's like wow these I could use these here. Uh, so he, he started using them and his company is actually the spay rod outfitter and guide service. And mm -hmm. you know, he might be a great, uh, great one to have on, on your yeah. podcast. Yeah. What was it? What was his uh, name again? Walt Grau. Walt, Walt, how do you I'm spell gonna, that? 
G-R-A-U. G-R-A-U. Just went out like riding with him last night. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So he's a uh, he's fully into the the steelhead uh, salmon game. He has been a full time guide here. Uh, I I don't know, maybe about forty years. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah, yeah that's the, always the challenge with the show. And I actually had a bunch of steelheads uh, episodes early on, and I um, and I kind of slowly transitioned to a new season. And I, I there's a lot of people from the Midwest I never got to. I mean, just one guy. I, I was looking at OPST. Last night, I think it was on social or something, and uh, Pinchkowski, you know, uh, Dave, that, you know, he's, <laughs> there's all these names of people out in that region that I'd love to get on the show, and I, I hope to eventually, um, and I'll definitely note um, note this person as well, um, because Steelhead's definitely one of my passions. You mentioned the um, FFI, and I did, I just want to note that uh, Len Zickler, the a CEO I had on in a past episode, we talked about uh, the kind of the history of you know, Fly Fishers International Federation, you know, that, that whole thing. And it was really interesting. A lot of things I didn't realize about them that, um, you don't hear about, but they, they definitely have a good, a good resource over there for people that want to learn more about fly fishing. Um, so, well, we're doing pretty well here. I think I just had a few more, um, you know, that we can, uh, kind of knock out here and I think we're going to be good to go. And one of them was, um, you know, we kind of covered the mentors and some of the folks that you're involved in. I, I just want to touch again on flies because we, we talked a little bit about this, but, do, you know, if you had to pick maybe one or two flies, your go-to flies for carp, what, what would they be? It's going to be different, I think, here in the Great Lakes than it's going to be anywhere else. So I can only speak to the Great Lakes. Yeah. I have been one other place. I got invited several years ago to be, uh, I don't, be a guest out for the Trout Slam in Colorado, in Denver. Yep. Um, and in, in, my whole day of, of fishing that tournament and seeing plenty of carp and throwing to plenty of carp, I caught absolutely zero. So that's <laughs> how good I am at catching non-Great Lakes carp. Yeah. So here it is all about the goby. I think I heard that the goby is the largest biomass of fish in Lake Michigan or maybe the whole Great Lakes now. Wow. It's an invasive species. That's not good, but they're here, and I don't think there's any way to get rid of them at this point. The good news is they are—they seem to be soft and delicious, and they make fish grow big, and uh, and fish like to eat them. So, my goby pattern—if I had one fly—would probably be the one I would go to. Uh, I think there's a link to the old version of it on our website under the fly section. Okay, but it's a double articulated. Uh, it would look like a sculpin pattern, um, and that would be the one. If I could only have one fly, that would be the one at this point that I would go to, and that's probably not changed in the last dozen years. Yep. Okay. And so I'm that really, yeah, really easy though. I've got a a pattern called a carp breakfast, and it's actually in a few fly shops. Um, and I that that fly is basically just a kind of a modified woolly booger. Okay. Yep. Um, the trick is is to use a, a curved, it may be called a limerick salmon hook that has that gentle curve going from the, the eye to the bend. Mm-hmm. If you take your, your marabou and you wrap that deeply around that tail and then you trim your bottom hackle on your fly, right? These are going to do two things that are going to make that fly absolutely, and then you put your lead eyes on the bottom, you're going to do those three things are going to make that fly absolutely parachute hook up to the bottom and that is critical on any fly you want to catch the carp on in in this rocky water in northern uh, great lakes 
So you've got to have that fly absolutely 100% hook up all of the time, or it's a nightmare. And and that pattern is one that you could catch carp anywhere if you tied it unweighted, bead chain, small mm-hmm. lead eye, medium lead eye, and large lead eye in five different color variations, and you would need nothing else. And there couldn't be an easier fly to tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, I got you. It's got the the tail. It's like a marabou tail with a chenille body. Or yes. Is, yeah. Um, but bring that that marabou tail and wrap it just as hard around the bend of that hook as you can. Yeah. Um, and that's going to create a parachute effect. And what that also is going to do is it's going to stand that that fly is going to stand up at about a forty five degree angle on those lead eyes with that marabou. And that marabou, even if you don't move it, is going to swoosh. And that carp can find that even without giving it another pop because the, the, the thing is, so you've got a, a carp that's coming at the fly. He doesn't have very good eyes. He, maybe he doesn't see it. Maybe you're going to have to give it a hop to move it. But if you move it three hops or two hops because you're excited, now you're out of the strike zone. And even if that carp is just crazy to eat it, you're going to have to recast to get it back in the strike zone. So – I love those flies, and that goby kind of does the same thing with the double articulation and no weight in the back. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. That it that that tail will wave a little bit uh, as it as it sits there on the bottom, even without being moved. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. Yep, yep. The marabou is good stuff. And I'm just looking at yeah, you're on your site under carp flies. You have a couple other ones. The um, let's see, I guess Anderson's hammerhead and then uh, Morlock's uh, beast bait. Yeah, there should be some more on there. There should be uh, my goby pattern on there. Okay, yeah, I might be just missing. Oh, yeah, I see it above. Yep, got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, more locks goby. So, I see it. Okay. Modifications on that. We I now use a 60-degree a uh, Gami jig hook in a size 1. Mm-hmm. And that that's because we've lengthened that fly out. It used to be about 2.5 to 3 inches long, and now we've got it lengthened out to about 3 to 3.5 three inches. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, it's pretty long. Now, instead yeah. of using those old hooks, which were, were cheap uh, egg hooks, and then cutting off the, the the bend on them, and just using the shank part, we're using those, uh, what is it, fishmen or fish skulls, uh, you know, things that you would tie a, oh, what's the name of that fly, the, the multi-articulated flies that cost a fortune oh, at the okay. shop. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. So we're using those articulations in the in the small, medium, and large size to make that fly now. Oh, okay. All right. And are Actually, they, yeah. Small and medium, those together on that Gamagatsu 60-degree hook uh, are are the perfect length right now for the carp. Oh, cool. One thing about, about Beaver Island, and it's, it's kind of strange, the river, the Permarquette has hardly changed since I started guiding it 20 years ago or so. Other bodies of water that I fish really haven't changed. Beaver Island has never been the same one year to the next. So 10 years ago, we had a, a prey item, you know, this goby that wasn't even there. And now they are everywhere and the most abundant food source. And now we've had low water and now we've got high water flooding even small trees now. So every year we go up there, the whole landscape is different and the fish are acting different than they were in the past. They're, they're given up one of their favorite bays because it's flooded out, and now they're over here, which is, you know, mm-hmm. holding better water and, and whatever. So it is it is really neat that even after 16 full summers on the island, it is not 
uh, no year has been the same as the last one. And what and on the flooding out, what is that? What is that about? Is that just changes in the climate change or the environment? Or do you know why that's getting more waters coming in? More waters coming in, but I've never heard anyone say why. Right? More yeah. snowfall, more rainfall up in Canada. I I don't know because yep. it, you it's know, it rains down through Lake Superior, then it comes into Lake Huron, and then Lake Michigan, and uh, and then ultimately goes out through Lake Erie and and Lake Ontario there. But gotcha. Okay. I, I haven't heard anyone say why exactly why uh, it's going we're on. on this cycle, but it's came up about I think it's came up about seven feet in about seven years. Wow, seven yeah. feet! Yeah, that's it oh, is, huh. it is lapping over people's yards that have shoreline property now. There you go. Well, I'll leave a yeah. If anybody's out there, maybe somebody listening to this can uh, they know a little more of the background? Maybe they can leave a comment in the. Um, you know, in the blog post for what they think or just, yeah, reach out. That'd be good. Um, I also had a note here on, on uh, surface bugs. Are, is that something you ever, are they ever coming up? I mean, I know that you hear about stuff, eating stuff like random terrestrials or even like cotton, you know, on the, whatever is, do you, you know, are they going to take potato chips and stuff like that too? I have, I've never seen surface feeding activity on Beaver Island. Uh, Steve saw them clomping emerging mayflies. Uh, maybe that was the wrong word. He saw them feeding and breaking the surface on emerging mayflies uh, this summer. I saw that once about 50 miles away uh, in the Upper Peninsula from Beaver Island. When I, before I was guiding for them, I, I was camping up there right on the water. I may have even been sleeping in my boat, right? And I woke up, you know, right at sunrise. Um, and you can, I could hear surface commotion and holy cow, the carp are feeding on mayflies that are, that are, you know, sitting on the surface. So I had my trout box. So I, I tied up a mayfly and I had no luck. And after maybe a half hour, I realized that none of the mayflies that were sitting on the surface were being eaten, right? The, the carp were coming up and, and on a spot that there were no mayflies sitting on. So I realized that they were eating a merger. So I waterlogged that that hex nymph, and actually, after a while, I, I ended up getting a carp on it. Hmm. Um, but it wasn't, I can't say it was on the surface. Yeah. I, I had to sink it down below the surface to get that fish interested in it. Gotcha. So <laughs> that, that's it. That's 16, that's 20 years of, of yeah. right like surfing right there, and, and I've, that's my only surface story. Okay, not something to focus on. So, so yeah, as far as, I mean, you've, you've provided a bunch of good tips here. Um, Anything else you want to add before we kind of uh, kind of wrap this thing up? Anything else to help you know somebody that might be coming up there to to find some more fish? Um, anything we missed today? I'd say Northern Lake Michigan is a really really great place to visit, um, and if you want to really practice your flat skills, you know, before you you know go back down to the Caribbean or or wherever else you're going to go and do that. You know, getting 100 shots in a day is a pretty darn cool thing. And, and in May and June, there's lots of places in the in northern Lake Great Lakes that you can walk in and do that. Great exploring. You're not going to, except for Traverse City, you're not going to have anyone around competing with you. Um, I, I think it's I think it's just really neat. Other tips, I think we covered that really well. I mean, mm-hmm. basic rule of, of carp are that, you can't catch it if you don't get the fly into that strike zone, and that's about one fish length and straight in front of it. Yep. And the other one is you're going to have to get that fly there without disturbing that fish, right? So if it changes, 
its behavior in any way, that is almost a non-catchable fish. And I'll tell you from people in the boat, they want to keep wonking at fish that I see that their behavior has changed. And I'm like, you know, doing my best to call them off. Hey, give up on that fish. Let's focus on the next one that we're going to come across. Once you see that fish's behavior change, that that fish is not going to feed for you. You're going to have to move on right. to the, the next fish. Is, and do you move on to the next fish, or are you typically moving on to completely new areas? No. Well, usually that boat's going to be drifting or being pulled or drifting and you know doing a downwind drift or something. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna be encountering the next fish down the way. Okay. Very rarely are we anchored or staked out. Uh, you know, in one spot and letting the fish come to us. If we were walking, that would be the case. Yeah. If you're walking, what you want to do is think of those, watch those fish before you get in the water and say, okay, if I stand right behind this boulder, if I sneak out to behind that boulder and every 90% of the fish I can get a cast to from there and almost none of them are coming behind that boulder that are going to spook from me, then that that's going to be the perfect place to set up, set up that, that, you know, that hunting location and go after those. Too many people go right where the fish are and then they have a few fish run into them. And as soon as they panic and, and those fish flee off the flat, they're going to give a little bit of, of spook pheromone or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And it will ruin that general area. Okay. okay. If you want to test that, just go out there and do just what I said and then stand there and watch the fish come in happy as can be. And they're going to get 60 feet from you and they're just going to stop, turn 90 degrees and go back towards deep water. You're going to be like, wow, why are no fish coming in here anymore? Uh, and it, it's, it's that pheromone. And, um, and when you fish take off at full speed off that flat, every fish within a hundred feet knows that happened and knows something bad happened. I gotcha. I can have a, a cluster of of mudding fish around a flat, and we hook one of those, and he tears off, and I can see all of those other fish, you know, that were within 100, 150 feet of that fish stop mudding and, you know, level out and, like, take a look around and listen around to be like, hey, you know, what happened there? Something bad happened. So Okay. okay. And Don't underestimate, even though they're blind, all of their right. other fish are top-notch. Okay. Um, and just a, a note on the boat, I was kind of thinking about, um, you know, just on the, on the type of boat you or, or the company that you use. I, um, you know, I always think about, I had Flip Pallet on in a past episode and he was talking about his, you know, the Hell's Bay boats and things like that. Are there a bunch of different or what type of boat do you use? Um, and are there just a bunch of companies out there making that sort of skiff? So I don't use a, a flat skiff. What we've got is walleye boats. Oh, okay. Walleye boats. Mine is a polar craft. Um, but we've got walleye boats that are set up just like flat skiffs. Oh, and the, okay. the reason for that is we have to go in pretty rough water every day. Um, and I don't think most of the low profile flat skiffs are going to do well taking that, that chop over the bows and everything. Oh, yeah. Maybe a bay boat would work, but it's really hard to find a bay boat that's under 2,000 pounds. And then I'm going to have trouble pulling that in the shallow. Yeah, gotcha. Um, the other one is when we get out and wait early in the season, I'm going to throw out an anchor, right? And I've got a wind coming from the south, and I set up on the backside of a, a point or an island so that my boat's sheltered. I throw out a big old anchor. We go walking. We're two miles away from the boat. 
um, and the wind shifts 180 degrees. And by the time I can get back to the boat, it is sitting up on the rocks, bouncing and chop. Oh, wow. On my aluminum boat, I it's like, darn it, you know, uh, maybe I broke a trim tab off or banged up the skag on the motor a little bit or something like that. But really, there's no damage and it's not a problem. If that was a beautiful fiberglass, right. I would cry for a week. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that. That's right. And that's a weekly occurrence. Oh yeah, it's a normal deal. What um, can you talk just briefly about? Um, you know, getting your uh, captain's affiliation from the Coast Guard. What that process is like? We've talked a little bit about that. Is that a um, you know, was that a pretty difficult, uh, lengthy process to get that? No, I went. Uh, that was a long time ago. I went and took a a week course, and the guy that taught it was out of Traverse City. I don't remember his last name. It was Brian. I don't remember his company's name, but he did a great job, and. Uh, then he gave you the test and scored it. And, yep. So once it you get it. Really straightforward. What, and I can you, tell everybody that's got a captain's license this, never let it lapse. I've never done that, but I've heard horror stories. I think you have to start over from scratch if you uh, if you miss your, right. your expiration date. That's right. Yeah, so keep it going I strong. Actually, I don't know the name of the fellow, but uh, Steve and Walt and I, uh, we hire a guy out of, West Michigan that used to work for the used to be a Coast Guard guy. We hire him and he sends us the forms we need. We fill them out with all of the medical certificates and everything else. We send them back to him. He makes corrections, bounces them back and forth, and then he hand delivers them to the Coast Guard. And since I've been doing that, it has been stress free and effortless. Nice, nice. All right, those those some good tips there. I did notice in your. Um, in your uh, uh, email line or on, on your website, I think it was uh, thirdcoastfly.com. That has a lot of great information. We had a guide um, named Matt Dunn. Uh, his website or his blog was fishbeer.com. I don't even I don't know if Matt still does it. He's a great guy, but he was a he's a great writer. He's a good blogger. And when he came to work for us, uh, you know, he said, I can, I can really make something happen with a, with a blog at this point. And he did. And he started that. And I don't know if it was five, six, seven years ago, Matt took off for, for bigger and better things. He lives in New York and it has something to do. I think he's a, he may be the marketing manager for a brewery out there. Uh huh. I don't remember the name of it, but, uh, you know, I tried to keep that blog going for a few years after that, and, gotcha. and then, I, then I gave up on it. It's still online because it has years of great, valuable information, you know, tips, articles, fly tying, fly patterns, all of this kind of stuff. So yep. I know that it's still getting hits because I look at that every now and then. So I keep it up there and keep paying for it. But yep. uh, that's that's our our archive blog. I gotcha. You that's your blog with links. Okay. That's a, Yeah. That's another good resource. I was curious about that. So that'll, people can check out, um, yeah, third coast fly and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, cool. Well, uh, Kevin, anything else before we, uh, let you get out of here? I guess, um, I always ask, you know, in the next six to 12 months, if there's anything that, um, you know, new coming up for you personally or with your, you know, with your business that uh, you want to let us know. You know, no, uh, my guide partner of, of 10 or 12 years, Steve Martinez, uh, great guide, great guy. Him and I started going down and, and working in the, in Louisiana in the winters. Um, and that has been a really fun new adventure, learning all of that water and, and taking our people down there and showing, we make a point, we, 
We don't do any advertising or marketing down there. We just we just bring our customer base down there. So we take up a little spot on the water, um, but we we try not to compete with the locals at all. But we really enjoyed that, and I the carp fishing skills translated a hundred percent perfectly to those to what we needed to know for those red fish. All right. So, yeah, that that is, go. that is so good knowing how to lead those fish and and put that fly right where it goes. And our our carp customers transition perfectly over to redfish. So that's, that's kind cool. of that's cool. That's awesome. So you basically built like a lot of the good guides. Once you build your clientele, you get returning uh, clients, and then they you know and they're following you around down to these other areas. That's pretty awesome. Is that kind of the way it's working for you? It, it's worked exactly that way. And, it, you know, it's kind of neat because when you develop a relationship with your customer or they develop a, a relationship with you, you know, I've got I've got many folks that I fish the, the fall steelhead or salmon season with, then the spring steelhead and salmon season or steelhead season, then carp fishing on Beaver Island and then then redfish down there. So, you know, they get almost all of their 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 fly fishing in uh, and, you know, I get to spend time with my buddy, them, and and vice versa. So go out to dinner and have a few beers at night. And down there, we keep a big old chest full of oysters uh, and beer. And, and you mm-hmm. got a grill there to grill them up or eat them raw. It's uh, dang, it's cool to kick back and and do that. Yep, yeah, that's another. Yeah, the redfish. I've uh, had a couple of guests where we've chatted a little bit about that, but I think I need to dig back into that and get another. Uh, another episode, uh, you know, cause I, I wanted to get down there for sure and, uh, give that a shot. So, all right, Kevin, well, I think that's about all I have for you. Um, it, it's, uh, if people want to find you indigo guide is the best place. Yes, that's perfect. Okay. And are you, do you do the, uh, the social media thing or any of that stuff or <laughs> terrible? I don't. I'm okay. Sorry. No, no, it's good. <laughs> that makes it easy. We'll just go the, if they want to find you, they can go to the website and, and go there and um yeah this has been cool i've really enjoyed the conversations you mentioned i was kind of thinking of uh, a past episode i had with uh uh john mccloskey who kind of made the same similar point you did that he's over in georgia and he fishes there but half the year he's in alaska you know and, and he does trout spay that's kind of his thing and now people come to georgia to learn how to spay but he he gets his clients ready for alaska right so he get, he's got his alaska clients but they come to georgia to learn how to spay cast to do all that and yeah it's kind of similar for you like you said you got people that are coming to you they want to go to the you know the the salt and they can train with you before so that's a pretty unique thing and how many guys do you think are out there uh, guiding in that area over in the beaver island uh just steve and i I've, we've never had any competition no for kidding guys. yeah it's a really hard place to get to wow there you go so you guys are the only the only show in town that's pretty amazing and you know there's thousands of miles of Great Lake shoreline. I we used to have three guides, and we I dropped back to two guides because on the toughest days we were competing for spots, and that just seemed it did just didn't seem worthwhile. Um, not with so many other areas that you could go and set up a business and start doing that if you wanted to. So um, yeah, you know, there there on the tough days there really wasn't room for more than two of us. Gotcha. Gotcha. How's the? It's not unusual that Steve and I are in the same bay for half a day because it's the only spot we can get out of the wind that has fish in it at right. that particular time because it's too rough to get over to this island. It's too rough to get to that island, so we're stuck right here because of the wind direction on that day. And hey, you know it works out, but we sure wouldn't want three boats in there, right? Yeah, exactly. Cool. 
All right, well, I'll let you get out of here, uh, Kevin. Thanks for uh, you know coming in and chatting here about the uh, you know this fishery. It's it's pretty awesome. I mean, we have carp out here too, and that's always something you know trying to get some tips for people. So it sounds like some of it transitions over, but a lot of the stuff you guys do might be unique to your area. But um, but yeah, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and providing all your tips. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Okay. All right. See ya. See ya. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 102. If you're interested in heading out on a trip or just getting more details uh, with myself, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash destination to get some uh, details on upcoming guide trips close to home or further away. Thanks again for stopping by and check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you on the river or online.